This is Stimulus. Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here. And if you are new to the show, what we do here is deconstruct ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And our guest today is one of the most influential and I'd say also one of the most polarizing physicians on the planet, Dr. Scott Weingart. And when I say most influential, those who practice emergency medicine or critical care or hospital-based medicine surely have heard his name. But in case you haven't, Scott originally trained as an emergency physician, then has done two fellowships in critical care at the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, Maryland. He spends all of his clinical practice in the resuscitation unit, meaning that the only patients that he sees are the sickest. For over a decade, Scott has been the purveyor of MCRIT. That is a critical care podcast with, I don't know, tens of millions of downloads. Maybe it's even getting like 100 million by this point. But really, MCRIT has become a movement which brings the knowledge of intensive care medicine to the emergency department. Scott's the author of multiple books, including Emergency Medicine Decision-Making and the Resuscitation Crisis Manual. Now, that one is a really special book. It's kind of just the bold-faced stuff you need to know in the critical situation. And it's actually one of the most sought-after and quickest-selling-out books in all of medicine. And for those of you who have heard Scott on MCRIT, or you've heard me speak with him on, on ERCast, or you've heard him speak publicly or met him in person, you know that he is not one to mince words, and he always calls it like he sees it. And to many, he comes across as, you know, just brimming with bravado and brashness and confidence and arrogance, which by his reckoning can be problematic because as he is someone who many model their critical care and clinical approach after, he thinks that some, frankly, get the wrong idea. He's not, as many would think, fearless. Quite the contrary. You can see that the episode title for this is the, the Five Fears of Scott Weingart. And, you know, on a, on a personal note, this was a really interesting conversation for me because Scott is one of my closest friends. And before this, I didn't know any of the stuff that you're about to hear. He actually reached out and said, hey, I need to, I need to get this out there. The stuff that really makes me scared. I was like, wait, something makes you scared? He said, oh yeah, a lot of things. In fact, five things. But before we get to that, let me tell you who this episode is in support of. And why are we doing that? Why are we, you know, having episode in support of X? You know, for the last few months and for the next few months to come, rather than highlight advertisers, we are highlighting organizations that we believe in. And this episode is in support of IMALS. IMALS supports research, legislation of fast-track therapies, and provides critical resources to patients and caregivers. You guys know that ALS is relentless and I'll tell you, so are they. So is IMALS. And believe it or not, ALS is an underfunded disease and every little bit makes a difference. We will match donations. We at Stimulus will match donations to IMALS up to $5,000. You can find our Stimulus IMALS donation page in the show notes for this episode. And with that said, let's get to it. Our interview with Dr. Scott Weingart. All right, so you said something to me the other day that blew my mind, figuratively. That what people don't understand or apply to the things that you say is that they don't understand you are always afraid. And I mean, I, I've known you for over a decade now, and we talk regularly. And when you said that, even I was surprised. There's a lot of words that have been used to describe you, my friend. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of words that uh, I've heard, I've used. I mean, you can say you're confident, you're assured. People say you're arrogant, you've got bravado, you're macho, you're masterful, all of those things. But afraid is not one of them. Yeah, and I don't want to give the wrong impression here because... Um... I, I'm, this is not going to be one of those tell-all confessions in which my incredibly cocky attitude reveals this deep-seated self-hatred and constant, you know, inner voice telling me that you're not good enough. And all of my uh, alleged accomplishments <laughs> have been an attempt to overcome. No, that that's not what this is. So you say. All right. <laughs> so we're early on in the interview. 
care enough. Um, uh, you know, there, uh, when I when you mentioned like that, that was surprising to you. I really put some thought into it because it was something that like intuitively I'm like, yeah, of course. Um, but when you you actually mentioned, it, I, I put some deep thought into it. And I realized there's actually five th- fears that I think all of us should be carrying around to some extent. I I only carry around four of them. Let me back you up yeah, yeah. for a second. For listeners who don't know, Scott runs the MCrit podcast, which is the leading critical care pod. I'd say it's the leading critical care podcast in the world, but I would also say it is one of the main critical care influencing voices in the world. And it's interesting because you are like the Sid Vicious of critical care. You know, you, you're, you are anti-establishment. The things that you do buck against people who, you know, are not going to be early adopters. You describe yourself as bleeding edge. And you say things that some people would find outlandish. Some people would find really exciting. And, you know, people want to adopt it and listen to you. I mean, I've, I've done this hundreds of times. You've got hundreds of podcasts. I've taken what you said, applied it immediately to care, and I think saved lives. And it's just, oh, it's incredible. I'm getting chills thinking about some of those cases. So why is it a problem that people don't understand you're afraid. I mean, you're saying some incredible stuff. I mean, you're, some people are incredulous about the things you say, but why is this a problem? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll preface that first by saying you're using a word that is completely appropriate because we're talking about fear. And if you have fear, you're afraid. So your, your verbiage is absolutely dead on. And yet each time you say it, I'm like, that's not getting across what I'm trying to say because I carry the fear, but I'm not afraid. And I don't know if that mm. distinction is completely arbitrary, but I, I just noticed that each time you say it, I don't want anyone to be afraid, but you should be carrying fear with you. And if you're not, and I've met doctors who aren't, they're dangerous. Um, so fear is your friend for most of, most of the fears we're going to talk about, but it shouldn't be your enemy. It shouldn't be your limiter. It should be there as another voice. You know, uh, uh, what was that movie with the, Beautiful personification of all your emotions inside out, right? Fear should be one of those voices, but it should be a voice that you listen to and then choose whether to regard or ignore. If fear is your primary internal theme, then you're afraid and that's a problem. Could another way to describe this distinction be you need to have a healthy dose of respect for the bad things that could happen versus fear slash anxiety slash, you know, living in doubt. Yeah, yes. But when we go into them, I think some of them will be what you just said. And some of them may actually be legitimately more than respect. It'll be legitimately a fear. Okay. So, well, why is it a problem before we get into the fears you carry? Why is it a problem if people don't have that? Because, you know, the things that you're saying are logical and very applicable immediately to clinical care. So there's this exaggerated personification I have in my head of who this danger really applies to. And, and uh, you know, for better or for worse, and for wh- whoever I malign with this, uh, I always think of them as meat dicks. And this is a term that generally <laughs> oh refers to a broish frat guy who somehow has managed to make it into the incredibly selective world of med school and then emergency medicine. And they have not built through society and good parenting, the internal structure that keeps them from doing dumb shit. And so these people are the ones that I worry about. When they hear something on MCRIT, which in my mind has been really vetted for the right time to do it, what its perils are, what its possible complications are, and they just hear it and say, oh, that sounds cool. Let me, let me try that tomorrow. And a lot of badness can ensue from that. Well, what would be a specific example of this? And this, you can, and it could be just in my mind, this is what happened, or maybe something that you've heard as when a healthy dose of respect or fear wasn't applied to your principles, like, oh, this bad outcome did happen. Like DSI is a perfect example. Delayed sequence intubation, where the procedure before intubation is pre-oxygenation. Yeah, exactly right, Rob. You got it precisely right. So, you know, it's a patient who's just not letting you do what you need to do. Um, they're, they're fighting you. They're encephalopathic. It might be because of drugs. It might be because of their hypoxemia, et cetera. And they're just not letting you stick a mask on their face, a non-rebreather, or, or put them in the position that's going to uh, allow you to get them ready for intubation. Things can go south during that time when they're being oxygenated. And it's like, it's not, it's not a given that they're going to do okay. Right. And that's exactly it, is 
anything you do out of the ordinary, because if something bad happens during the ordinary, then people accept it's the patient's fault, right? They blame the patient for better or for worse, and they shouldn't, but they do. It's the patient's fault if you're doing everything exactly right. On the other hand, any divergence from the ordinary now puts all that onus on you. So whenever I do delayed sequence intubation, even though, you know, 999 out of 1,000 times, they're going to keep breathing, sometimes they don't. So I'm scared that they're not because I'm diverging. And so therefore that healthy fear keeps things safe. And I won't go and see another patient after pushing the ketamine and come back, you know, five minutes later after they pre-oxygenated because that would be stupid. But that's because there is the voice in your head of fear. And fear is beneficial. Fear was put there for a reason. Everything we have in our heads is evolutionarily beneficial for the most part. Some of them are miscalibrated on an individual basis, but as a group, as a human being cohort, fear wouldn't be there unless fear was beneficial. And the benefit of fear is it allows you to uh, presage, predict evil shit that's going to happen and avoid it. Have you heard of this specific thing being misapplied and then a bad outcome? Yeah, I, I mean, not, have I heard it from DSI? I, I can't remember. It might have been like one case, but they're never sent by the people because those people in general don't learn their lessons. It's sent by the residency directors saying, you know, I, they listened to this podcast. They didn't talk to us first. They decided to do something with an attending who was game, but didn't really know what they were getting into. And, you know, this ensued. And I look at the case and I'm like, I never would have done that. I never recommended, on, like, I, I remember the words I said on the podcast. I never said to do that. This was an extrapolation because people in emergency medicine, no, I shouldn't even say people, some people in emergency medicine are in it because of the novelty slash uh, self-exaltation slash exhilaration slash the same people that want to skydive and jump out of planes and, and do, you know, various hang gliding type stuff. There's a portion of our community that have that as their mental model for how to get their jollies. Um, those people can be dangerous. Uh, they obviously have proven that their fear calibration is set at a different place than others in society, or else they wouldn't do that dumb shit. Let me pause you there for a second, because when I first heard about this, I didn't fully understand you know, all the bad things that could happen, because in my mind, and I, and I wasn't experienced with using ketamine in this way as you know, it was more of, I will give this, I will give ketamine, I will put this fracture back in line, I will sew this laceration. It wasn't that, oh my gosh, I can bridge a gap using this, you know, maybe not put somebody completely under. And in my mind, when I first heard you talk about it, I thought, well, it's kind of like putting them in the slow cooker. I'll put that oxygen on, they'll be in the slow cooker, and I'll come back, the recipe will be all done, they'll be ready to be intubated. So I, I think that was more from ignorance than from wanting to skydive on this patient. Yeah, well, the thing is, critically ill patients will mess you up because they don't follow the rules of your procedural sedation patients. And we've seen this with every possible situation of medication is that it's different for critically ill patients. Um, you know, your normal patient, you're putting a hip in, they're not going to stop breathing from ketamine. If they do, it's for 10 seconds and then they're fine. Critically ill patients, they like to die. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying really hard to die. And if you give them opportunities, they will take that. In the words of my uh, mentor, Tom Scalia, uh, sick patients don't take a joke. Uh, procedural sedation ones do very well. They love jokes. I think embracing that idea that sick patients don't take a joke, having an appreciation for that may be even better than saying, be afraid. Mm. I understand that, that these guys don't take a joke, meaning there is very little room for error. Well, when we get into specifics, I'll tell you which of the five that one is applicable to. You would love it if people would have a healthy respect for the sick patient or for this for the things that you use and use them with a mindset of that health respect of things that can't take a joke or of fear so what are the fears well i'm gonna have to stop you again rob and, and this is just because i spent so much time in the past four months looking at emotions that's i get into these holes of research on like things and emotions have been the one and when you say respect that's cognitive robbie and the fear may lead to the cognitive, but emotional is not respect. It's fear. It legitimately is. It's useful, and you shouldn't want to get rid of it, but it is an emotion, and it's not respect. Respect is what comes from understanding how to rein in and ride your fear rather than letting it 
trample you. So we're talking amygdala here. We're talking cortisol here. We're not, we're not talking Spock. We're Ex- talking exactly Kirk. Exactly right. Exactly okay. right. Okay. Have you seen the show Lucifer? Yeah. There's the one guy who says, you know, what is it that you fear? And, and then you have to like reveal your fears. <laughs> so <laughs> what is it that you fear, Scotty Weingarten? You said there were five. Yeah, so let's just five. break them down. Yeah. yeah. So number one is fear of lawyers, uh, which is pretty unique to the United States, though I hear it's infiltrating other countries. Um, and, and this is a healthy fear as well, as long as you uh, use it the right way. Now, the unhealthy way to use this fear is to just be like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to get sued for this. I'm going to do, you know, every CAT scan known to man on every patient that comes in. And, and I know docs that live that way, and they're living in a bad fear. Um, it's making them do bad care to patients that do things that the patients don't need and don't want because of their fear of lawyers. Robbie, I, I know you did not practice this way. In the beginning of my career, I did. I was totally afraid of getting sued. And I would order uh, scans on patients like, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on. Why don't we just scan you? Later in my career, it was, you know, I'm not sure what's going on. It doesn't look too bad. Let's give this a test of time if you're comfortable with that. And just come back tomorrow morning. Let me recheck yep. if you're worse. Yep. Come back. I think I was more comfortable involving the patient in that. Like, it's like, oh, well, there's a whole other person here that can be involved in this yep. decision making. And frankly, I don't know that that was anything... On my part, I think that that was because shared decision-making was really popularized and made into this important thing that's involved in medicine rather than, you know what, I have to decide everything that's going on here. Yes, you've put your finger on one of the two ways that this could be used as a healthy impetus. And and one of them is shared decision-making. One of them is asking the patient what they want and then finding it out. And then the second part of it goes along with that, which is documentation. And that's how this fear should be dealt with, is learning the things to write to allow you not to do the stupid CAT scans that the patient doesn't need, or allow you not to work up a PE on every single patient that comes in with shortness of breath. So you shouldn't do the CT angio, you should document your medical decision-making and then involve the patient. And that's the way to deal with this fear. A couple things on that. It sounds like you see lawyers like a politician, uh, not like a politician on the extreme of, you know, whatever, but like your run-of-the-mill politician would see the press. I need to be cognizant of what I'm doing and make sure I'm staying on track because I'm going to be questioned about that or I could be questioned. It's like, I need this to be logical and hopefully good decision-making. Exactly right. And this, this is a healthy fear because this is our system. And I think it leads to better patient care if you approach it the way you and I have just spoken about it, as opposed to doing unnecessary tests, admitting every patient for no reason, because it leads to the right care. So this is a good fear. I'm curious about your documentation. Uh, I've spoken with so many people about this over the years on on how to document. And there's like these different camps. There's the camp of the minimalist. Who, let's say somebody comes in with chest pain and you, well, you're thinking about pulmonary embolism. So someone comes in with chest pain, they might write, doubt, serious cause of chest pain. Just very minimal versus patient presents with chest pain. Differential diagnosis includes, but is not limited to pulmonary embolism, cardiac ischemia, blah, 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 blah. Pulmonary embolism felt unlikely because blah, 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 blah. Are you a minimalist or are you a prosaist? Well, the minimalists, I don't think have, are, have any basis for that. Like if it's really, I mean, you might be exaggerating, but if it really is as minimal as you described, that's very dangerous. And I'll tell you why. And I've experienced on, on both ends of how courts work as, as both a witness, uh, because thankfully I was at a hospital where you can't actually get sued, but I bet I would have been if, if I was not at that hospital and as an expert witness, uh, you know, just being a third party to it, the way, well, one of the ways that attorneys will nail you is by being able to show, since your documentation did not support it, that you never thought of a life-threatening diagnosis. And you might get up there on the stand and say, no, of course I did. Every chest pain patient, I think about pulmonary embolism. You're going to have a really rough time of it. As opposed to, if you write in your chart, I thought about pulmonary embolism, but I did not work it up because the patient's right big toe hurt. And my experience has been right big toe pain eliminates the possibility of pulmonary embolism. You know, obviously complete bullshit. That is a incredibly hard case for that attorney to now decide to take on because they're taking it on their own buck because now they have to argue with your medical knowledge. Now they have to say, no, right toe pain is not uh, a way to rule out pulmonary embolism as opposed to what's very easy, which is you never thought about it in the first place. So my belief is you have to be fearful that the chart will be looked at from the things that will screw you, 
and then just take care of them. Look, we're looking at Scott's chart. Pulmonary embolism considered, but felt unlikely, period, or because? Okay, so you got to ask yourself if there are, is a because. Sometimes you're going without great becauses, right? So like if the perk is negative, then you just write. Pulmonary embolism rule out criteria. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that you can just in your mind use this thing and you don't have to do any testing. It's like, it's so unlikely, not going to do anything else. Right. Well, for that, you don't even have to elaborate on it. You say low pretest probability patient with a perk negative. And then you okay. have a in gold, you know, done. If you just don't feel they have pulmonary embolism, but you don't, you know, maybe they are tachypnic because uh, of uh, their their pain from, you know, something else or what have you. I think just writing did not work up pulmonary embolism as below the testing threshold based on my evaluation of the patient. That's enough. If you have supportive stuff, then then by all means, write it. But but that's enough, I think. So we've got fear of lawyers, the healthy fear of lawyers, yep. not the over-testing defensive medicine fear of lawyers. No, what's number two? Number two, I don't experience. And I'm going to tell you what the fear is. <laughs> and then I'm going to beg the indulgence of the audience to let me explain before they start making snap judgments about what an asshole I am. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, number two is a uh, fear of being an imposter. It's an inner voice that is saying negative things about your performance and, and your capability of getting the job done and completing a procedure and... Uh, I know many of our brethren, because they've told us this, they've been brave enough to even say it during like lectures at national and international conferences, have this going on. I don't. But you do. By self-report, you don't have this internal dialogue, but you have an external dialogue. And you told me this really long story about a case where you criked a patient and you ended up cutting their neck. It was like a total shit show, but you got it done. You got the tube in. And, you know, you're okay. You're okay with how the whole thing is going. And then anesthesia comes. And in your mind, this is where the real thing came, that they couldn't intubate the patient. Like, I don't know how long they tried for like an hour. They couldn't do it. And you were so glad because then if they had done it, then you would have been called to task for criking too early, criking too easily, or not giving intubation, try or not consulting with anesthesia. Because that would have been the self-doubt when you were called out, rather than you saying like, oh, yeah, I did the wrong thing. Well, that case is worse than you even described, but I'll go into it because that actually is a perfect example. Okay, let me explain why I don't have this inner voice and why when I say that, people might be, he's an arrogant asshole, um, and I, I, I hope that's not the case. Um, it doesn't work that way for me. Uh, since I was very young, I thought my skill level at everything was zero until there was external calibration. And I don't know what caused me to have that mindset. I think it's a different mindset than most people. I had no inner voice telling me I sucked. My cognitive assumption was I have no skill at something until there was an external marker saying I did. And that's all I used. I never used my own internal markers. I think I had seen enough around me. This was probably like at the beginning of my adolescence of all these people who I didn't have the words for it back then, but you know, we're experiencing Dunning-Kruger where... Um, they thought they were far better than they were. And like the, the insane examples of this is when you see the, uh, those singing shows, uh, what is it? America's got talent or what have you. Yeah, yes. And, and these people have gotten to the point where they think they are this virtuoso singer. And then, it, it, I mean, it's hideous, but they, like you could tell by their face, this is the first time in their life they've ever been externally calibrated to they're actually singing town. I had enough experiences like that that I said, this is never going to happen. I, I had this real fear of ever thinking I was better than I was. So I start at zero for any given skill or body of knowledge, and then I externally calibrate. And, you know, there's beautiful opportunities for this in emergency medicine. You could externally calibrate by following up all your patients and seeing you really thought it was this. Was it or wasn't it? You could even go so far as to keep a, a log of how many times you were right or wrong to calibrate your sensor of your degree of assurance. Procedures, you know, calibrated based on the success rate. You know, you should really find out how many times you get first first pass success on intubation. You should be tracking that. Um, and yet you mentioned that crate case, Rob. Now, this was an incredibly impossible intubation that then progressed to a failed LMA and a crike. But I did not know because there's no way to know if it was because of my skill set 
or because of the patient pathology that they could not be intubated through laryngoscopy. So it's not that anesthesia came. It's that after the crack was in, I called anesthesia to intubate the patient. And if they intubated, it would have been wonderful because I could have taken the crike out and then sewed up my site. But it was also partially because I wanted to know, could they intubate the patient? And if they could, then that's now for me to calibrate down my intubation skills. Now, of course, the situation was vastly different when I was intubating a hypoxemic patient who was dying versus them where they have all the time in the world. I would have taken that into account. But the point is, the physical skills, I thought I was at one level and maybe I have to downgrade my Bayesian priors a little bit. Now, thankfully, in this case, they didn't. They weren't able to. Um, so now I, I could retain the same Bayesian predisposition towards my skill set. If they had intubated that person. There was something that you said, made me want to ask us when you said, well, you know, I had to do it when they were hypoxic and crashing and, you know, totally undifferentiated and they'd have all the time in the world, which already puts a qualifier on yeah, that. Yeah, right? like, oh, There's the proviso. Now, if they had done it, Let's not talk about the external dialogue. What about the internal dialogue? Would there have been a sense of, I'm kind of disappointed that they could do this? Yes, yes, for a little while. And I, I'd give free reign to it. I'd let, I'd let that you know voice play around for a while. And then I'd, I'd, I'd take control. And it wouldn't last. And I usually would probably give it uh, a couple hours to percolate because I think that's healthy. I think you, you should go into the miasma of your mistakes for a little while and, and let the, the real negative voices speak to you because they may some, say something valuable that you wouldn't hear otherwise. If you're capable of turning those off the second it happens and never listen to them, you're missing out on vital information and self-recalibration, but I don't let them speak too long. Negative voices are kind of insulting. It's not thinking like, ah, oh, yes, well, perhaps you should have done X rather than Z. It's kind of like, well, y you suck a little bit. No, well, yeah, a little, but most of my voices are, why didn't you X? And are you kicking yourself for it? A no, a bit? no. And, and this is part of the external calibration. I think I'm a very good resuscitation doc. I have external calibration of that, not internal mm -hmm. calibration. So if yeah. I make a mistake that wasn't because I was thinking about something else outside of work at the time or because I was, you know, decided to, uh, if there was, I was doing my job and I fuck up, then I just build that as people are going to fuck up. There's no way to avoid it. You can't do the job we do and not. So very little of that real, vile, self-destructive voicing. One of the things that you told me about this case was that you really, really, really didn't want the Monday morning quarterbacks talking about this the next day about how the ER doc crike too early or couldn't get the tube or didn't call anesthesia or what, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, you get called to M&M, you get called to the meeting, you get called to peer review. Even if you did everything right, sometimes you still get called and then, oh God. Yeah. This is number three. You put, you, you let in perfectly. It's like you do this for a living. Yeah. Fear of Monday morning quarterbacking could also be very useful because it allows you to uh, have foreshadowing of what you're going to experience tomorrow and fix the situation <laughs> today and make your life better. Um, so this is a good fear to have. Now, it would be great to be in a hospital where you don't have any Monday morning quarterbacking. That's negative. There should always be uh, Monday morning people looking back so that you could improve. But uh, I'm speaking about it when it's done badly. And unfortunately, many hospitals have done badly. At my, the place I put at the pinnacle of goodness for this shock trauma center, all the quarterbacking the next day was done in a really wonderful fashion. You wanted it to happen. You actually would bring it up yourself because you wanted other people's opinion. And it would always be from this really good place of, uh, yeah, you screwed that up. Let's fix it so it doesn't happen again. And you'd feel great about it. You'd almost feel like this uh, loss of a burden when, you, when you'd when uh, you beat yourself up because uh, the feedback you'd get was, first of all, from people you respect, and second of all, they had the right attitude towards it. This is why, you know, the Crike example is perfect because many Crikes you'll perform, uh, you'll hear from the anesthesia people, why didn't you call us? You'll hear from uh, the, the quality assurance people, uh, you, you know, uh, what the hell were you doing? You, you obviously are not good at airway. And that will destroy you if you let it. And if you could stave it off, it's better than having the right responses when it actually happens. And so in this case, calling anesthesia was also because I did think this was an impossible intubation. And I knew what was going to happen is if they couldn't get it and they couldn't, um, they were going to tell all of the other uh, there's, there's an anesthesiologist at Janus General that reviews every intubation case all across the hospital. And uh, this person sometimes makes my life sadder than it needs to be. And 
I, I knew if, if they came and saw what patient we actually were experiencing versus what I'd write in a chart, uh, it, there would be no problem because when, when those people told them what was there, then, then it was only congratulatory. Yes, this was an inevitable surgical airway. But you could also make this happen on the chart. If you have something that goes horribly awry, even if you did everything right in your mind, you know that this should be a chart documentation far better to explain your mindset than one where everything went perfectly. And I see countless emergency physicians that don't realize this and write these crappy notes that, you know, I'm on the quality assurance side. I read them the next day. I'm like, I know this person. They're a good doc. I bet they did everything right. But reading this note, they sound like idiots. And now luckily with me, if I'm their QA person, I'm going to call them up and say, hey, tell me what happened and give them the benefit of the doubt. Most of the other people in the hospital aren't doing that. So the fear of the Monday morning quarterback drives your documentation more than it drives your practice. Documentation as the last step. It might drive getting the extra consult because even though you don't feel it's absolutely necessary, if you put yourself in the mind of the people that do cause this problem for you in your hospital, like for instance, at Janus General, if you have an issue with like a service not doing what's right, and, you know, like, for instance, they don't take a patient to the OR for six hours or, uh, you know, the, there's a long period of time before they're transferred or anything, anything that happens, if you called the attending of that service, you were completely off the hook. You know, if that service was the attending was a attending to attending conversation and they didn't do the right thing, that's that service's fault. On the other hand, if you spoke to their residents, even high up on the resident chain, and those residents spoke to the attending of that service, and you told them exactly what you wanted them to tell the attending, and they claim they did, you're screwed. You're screwed. You will not win on that Monday morning quarterbacking because the, the ethos of Janice General is any problem should have involved very early on in attending to attending conversation. So if you know that about your hospital... Even if, you know, you didn't feel the need to call their attending because the chief resident who you trust said, I told him, he said they don't need to go to the OR. You're, you're not going to win that one. It's going to like nothing else. Everything else done perfectly. You didn't speak to that attending, even though you thought they should go to the OR. You're done. You know, so that's what I mean. Okay. So your fear of Monday morning quarterbacking drives for you to take actions to have the appearance of due diligence. Mm-hmm. Yes, and due diligence beyond even what you think if that's what the Monday quarterbacks are going to harp upon. <laughs> okay. All right, so we've got three Weingart fears. So we've got fear of lawyers slash fear of the press. We've got fear of imposter syndrome slash fear of I suck, which is not necessarily a Weingart mental construct, but is acknowledged as one. Fear of the Monday morning quarterback. And that's almost like, fear of the press as well, or fear of M&M saying like, okay, I don't want this to wind up at the, uh, the M&M conference of peer review. I, cause I know I need to take these X steps to prophylactically prevent that pain in the butt. And what's number four? Fear of complications. Um, and this is primarily procedural. This is where the meat dicks really thrive in causing M&M after M&M is you need to, first of all, know the complications, but that's just first order knowledge. You need to understand. <laughs> wait, wait a second. <laughs> So there's a lot of subscribers to MCRIT. <laughs> and, and I have a feeling that there is a large percentage of them that are going to be self-reflecting, listening. I know we have a lot of cross-pollination. Self-reflecting, listening to this, thinking, am I a meat dick? If you're an MCRIT listener, there's an excellent chance you're a meat dick. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are MCRIT listeners supposed to be self-loathing? Oh, dude. Oh, look, I'm going to tell uh, something I wouldn't say on my own show. Um <laughs> But I'll say it here, and oh it might God. percolate, it might not. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, the the MCRIT audience is a, in my mind, a group of about a thousand people that are these incredibly thoughtful, amazing, self reflective uh, doctors and resuscitationists, and um, they're just amazing. And I'm in awe of these people, and I learn from them, and they write me back, and they make me better. That's my audience. There's about a thousand of them. And they're probably evenly split male, female, and the males are not meat dicks. Your comment section is the best comment section on the internet. Well, thank you. Uh, but even that, I think, is a mix of the thousand I'm speaking to. And then the other, I don't know, 50,000 or 55,000, uh, depending on the month. This is a horrible ratio. Yeah. 
Uh, those folks are a mixed bag. They're not all meat dicks, Rob, but there's a definite huge meat dick contingent in that in that group. And I'd say that's primarily that group, uh, more male than female, and and definitely a lot of testosterone amongst those males. Oh my god, we were talking we were talking about that show, Designated Survivor, beforehand. This this is like when his when the president's advisor comes in and says, "Sir, you're trending down on social media." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, you know, this is also the beauty of, of Weingart is you know he's going to call it like he sees it, people. And so when you hear it on MCRIT, trust me, you're hearing it as it comes from the mind and the mouth of Weingart. You know, I think that some people, we have a friend who is uh, a like celebrity doctor, right? Z- the Z-Dog. Right? We, know, we know Z-Dog. So, you know, when we hang out with him, he's different than he is on the show. And he says, yeah, that's, that's the character, yep. Z-Dog MD. It's like Zubin. It's like the guy, but it's like, yeah, no, that's a, pers- a persona I put on. MCRIT is more like, uh, it makes me organic chemistry lab, is you got this, this beaker full of wine guard and you distill, <laughs> you distill it. You don't amplify it. You distill it <laughs> down to this super concentrated, oh, what's the word? Well, you know what? Listeners, we'll just let the word linger. So we've got our three fears so far. You can talk about fear of complications. Yeah. And before you jump into this, the thing that I think of with you and fear of complications are your micro skills talks, which are, I found personally transformative. And because it was, I, I, I thought I was really adept at certain procedures, for example, a central line or a chest tube, you know, an awake intubation or whatever. But you have these micro skills videos of it breaks down this one step where you would just like pushing a catheter. It's like, no, that's actually three steps of how you do this. And you do this in a really small way. And you know what? 99 out of 100 patients ain't going to make a difference. But maybe on that one, it would make the difference between living and dying. Yep, absolutely. You know, uh, and I, I say again, uh, hopefully I, the preface I gave about how my inner voice works will not make this sound arrogant, but I, I think I'm fairly <laughs> adroit at procedures. And and part of that is I have more experience than many people because the only gig I do is resuscitative medicine. But I've spent an enormous mind space trying to break down procedures, trying to make every single step as good as possible. And so I say that as a preface to the fact that I am still fearful of causing a complication every procedure I do. Now, obviously, if I'm placing a peripheral IV, the complications I don't care about. But the point is, I have that sitting there and it is a fear. It's not a fear that makes me feel bad. It's not a fear that makes me uh, do anything in a negative fashion. It's a healthy fear. And that fear will make you ask yourself, is this really the best thing to do? Do I really need to drain this pericardial effusion or can they wait to go to the cath lab? Do I really need to place this transvenous pacemaker you know, now or, or is the patient going to be fine because their their vital signs are stable? And I think... The meat dicks don't have that fear. Like it doesn't even occur to them that this is a big deal. Or if it does, I, I, and I don't want to say, I, don't, I wouldn't put this on any individual, but I think there's probably some of them that don't care. That like them getting a chest tube in a really dicey situation where the patient's had prior thoracic surgery and therefore everything is matted down in there. And there's an excellent chance you could rip something and, and really cause a catastrophic injury. They just want the damn chest tube. Now, I, I think this is a very small percentage of our specialty, but- there are people out there that aren't feel, fearful of the complications, and that's not fair to the patients. Every time, it's a risk-benefit for everything we do. So the fear of complications is the application of the micro-skills. So when you do the procedure, it's you break it down into tiny incremental steps, and you have deliberate practice so that you have mastery of the procedure. So when you do it, you're excellent. But it sounds like more, and I, I, I had never heard you say this, is that you're asking yourself can I not do this procedure? If I do it now, am I rushing the procedure? Because, and, and this, is, this is so fascinating because emergency physicians definitely see themselves as expert proceduralists in the limited things that are done. And so it's like, oh, I can just do it here and it'll be fine. But acknowledging that, you know, if it's done in the operating room under these other circumstances, it might actually be better. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Rob, uh, you know, I'll push back, and again, I'll piss people off, and I'm sorry, um, but but many emergency physicians think they're expert proceduralists, and they're not at certain things they think they are. You know, this goes back to the internal calibration. It's why it's, I mean, the external calibration, which is so much more potent than the internal calibration. Uh, do you know your first pass success rate on intubation? 
because if you don't, you don't know if you're a good intubator or not. And, you know, even if your program's not tracking it, you should track it. You should have a log of every procedure you do and find out your success rate. And then you might have an idea of whether you're an expert proceduralist or not. Because many of the safe emergency physicians, they have a negative inner, inner voice. So they're fearful of the complications because they don't think they're good enough. That's somewhat healthy. There's another group out there that thinks they're the master of everything with no external calibration, and those people are dangerous. You know who Jim Rome is? The sportscaster? No. He's got no, the no. G- Jim Anyway, he calls his listeners clones. He says, what's up, clones? Because I think that his listeners, when they call in, they talk like him. I'm, I wonder if in the next couple of months, you're going to start starting your show. What's up, meat dicks? <laughs> Time for another episode of MCRIT. Yeah. Put on your seatbelts. You know, it's funny. There was a, a good three-year chunk of my career at the beginning where I called everyone killer in the medical field. And like with people calling someone boss or governor right. or just like, Hey killer, how you doing? Or yeah, that was a good, uh, good tube there killer. And, and it was because we all are, that's, that's what we are. I mean, that's where the learn just scope as a murder weapon came from. And you just try to have to lower your kill rate as low as possible. Oh my God. Oh, see, I thought you're saying killer as in like, nice one, homie. No, well, no, I mean, that's how they took it. What percentage of you would you say others might describe as being a jerk? What percentage? How do I how do I evaluate that? Do you mean what percentage of the time or what percentage of you? <laughs> I, I'm at least three percent jerk. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to evaluate that. I, if you phrase the question differently, I'm sure I could give a valid answer. Is Scott Weingart a jerk? Scott Weingart is an acquired taste, and <laughs> and there are. Um, I think it does come back to a confidence thing because <laughs> if you have a slightly low self-confidence, I am like, not good, not good for you at all. Okay, so we di- we digress. <laughs> that, that could be the title of the podcast, Rob. Scott Weingart is a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I know that you've got this other podcast about philosophical thinking that is in, and it is going to be awesome when it comes out, but... You should not call it what you're going to call it. You should call it Scott Weingart is a jerk. <laughs> give, because, me the, give me the subtitle. No, man, you don't know how to brand yourself. <laughs> yeah, you fair enough. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me ask this, getting getting back to rushing procedures. I, I mean, I, I fell victim to this so many times, putting in a chest tube in the emergency department when someone was going to go to the operating room and it could be done, you know, under, let's be honest, much more sterile conditions, much more control conditions. They weren't crashing and they were going to, you know, get something anyway, or intubating someone in the emergency department when it's like, oh, I'll just intubate them. And you take them to the OR for, I, I can remember somebody who had appendicitis. I was a resident and you know, as a resident, I want to do intubations. And so I intubated that person. The anesthesia was there. I said, oh, why don't I intubate him here? And then, you know, just take them to the OR. As I've been in the OR then, in the operating room, and I've seen what happens there, and I've also seen what happens to tubes in transport, and then it takes time to confirm XYZ. It's like, oh, you know, there are so many points of error between here and there, and somebody who is not critical, I don't know how to phrase it, but like, that was A, all about me and not about what was bad for the patient, 100%, as I look back on, you know, many of those cases now, including central lines, including chest tubes, including probably not a pericardiocentesis. That was always kind of a big thing. But is what I'm doing now going to be best for the patient? And you know, a pacemaker would be a perfect example. Like, ah, let's just float the pacer. They're going to, you know, they're going to get up to the cath lab soon. Yeah. You know, I don't want the pendulum to swing too far the other way either. What you describe all is perfectly apt cases, but people could use this fear as an excuse to wait for life-saving procedures that need to get done to not happen, to wait for the cardiologist to float the transverse pacemaker, for you know the surgeon to come in to do the surgical airway. So I, you need to calibrate this right. Me, it's never stopped me from doing something that's indicated, but it has stopped me from doing things that weren't indicated. And when I do it, it may change my approach. You know, I, I see plenty of residents, oh, can we do a subclavian on this patient? And, and then you like look at their body habitus and they're on uh, a NOAC and they can't be lied flat because they're breathing so bad. And it's just like, that was not a healthy fear of complication when you evaluated, can we do a subclavian on this patient? Mm. Put the damn femoral in, even though I hate those lines, because that's what's safest for the patient in this circumstance. 
And to your point, and you make an excellent one on you need to think so many steps ahead and somebody might look fine right now, but you know, based on how disease progresses, your experience, your knowledge, all that damn training that you put in, that in an hour, they're going to be in horrible condition and you need to get this under control while things are chill and calm. And that's a whole nother thing. And you will be called out by the Monday morning quarterbacks. Personally, I have been on many occasions. I can remember recent one, a guy who had a blast injury to his face and had soot in his nose and he had a hoarse voice and I intubated him and the burn surgeon just you know, took me to task. Like, you guys intubate too early? It's like, well, I don't know. I had to fly this guy yeah. three hours to get to yep. you. And you know what? I think that you have to be comfortable with sometimes making the wrong decision there conservatively thinking like, I- I'm not sure which way this is going to go. You know, I've got this guy with... Stevens Johnson syndrome and ulcers in his mouth and he's talking to me, but I think in an hour or two, he's going to be bad. He might be fine. He might be bad, but I'm okay if I make the wrong decision in favor of anticipating this bad outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you gave such a perfect example because, you know, if that patient was in the emergency department at that burn surgeon's center... Yeah, they might not have needed to be intubated, but they don't know what transport means. They just seem to think, oh, well, if they got bad during the transport, then they could just get into. That is a complete misunderstanding. Like that is just a Monday morning quarterback who doesn't understand the game. And so you just, you just let that brush off you. Well, obviously I didn't because I still carry it with me. <laughs> but you said earlier that you are a pure critical care doc, a pure intensivist. Like you don't see isolated ankle fractures or, you know, vaginal bleeding or kids with sore throat. I mean, you see people who are for the most part going to die in the process of it or extremely sick and could die. Do you have a fear of your patients dying? Yeah, well, that's number five. And, you know, and look, if the, if you find these terms offensive, uh, I apologize. Not really. I don't. That's just lip service that I say to like show that I understand that maybe you find this offensive. But I, I consider what we do in resuscitation as a game that we're playing with you on one side and death on the other. And death is trying to win. This is where I said it would fit back in. The sick patients don't take a joke. This is the one. And as you get better and better at resuscitation, things that a second year resident would get a healthy dose of this fear um, because they're just fearing the chaos of not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Do- doesn't even phase you. Um, but when I have a really sick patient, a patient that the game is on, where death is really trying to win, I get this feeling of fear. But And I say it, but it's not negative at all. It's is what puts me into flow state. And when I feel it, I'm like, this is not training anymore. This is for real. And you know, most of the stuff I do, I'd say 98% of my day is just training. And it's really training the residents. I'm not afraid at all. I know even if they fail, I have four or five layers of failure before anything bad is going to happen to this patient. You know, I, I, I know I have it under control. And then that 2% is where all the training gets tested and the game is on. And if you know what I'm talking about, I think anyone who's done resuscitation enough does, it, it's this feeling of... I'm afraid this patient's going to die and they're going to die on my watch and they're going to die having come in speaking to me. And that fear motivates me. That fear makes me play a much better game than I would otherwise. And it does shift me into flow state. And it's on that, uh, what is it, Hudson Dodge? I'm forgetting the curve where if you don't have any stimulation, you don't perform well. If you have too much stimulation, you can't perform well. But if you have just the right amount, you perform better than you do with no challenge whatsoever. Part of flow state theory is there's this point where you have maximal challenge meeting maximal training, right? You're, you're sort of on the edge, but you just were talking about the different levels of arousal. And I think it's very, not I think it is very easy when you're in that maximal challenge state to go to the maximal arousal state and become ineffective and not be in the flow. There's breathing exercises, circle breathing box breathing, triangle breathing to help downregulate, to get into more of a flow state. Is there anything that you do when you're in that situation or is it just kind of, that's where you naturally land? We all kind of jumped on the bandwagon of, of square breathing or circle breathing, but you know, anyone who's trained in meditation realized the amazing regulatory power of any awareness-based breathing at all. Uh, it doesn't really matter. All of that, it's just a kludge 
you know, what if you're counting the breaths, it's forcing you to be aware of your breath. And, and anyone who meditates, like, you know, Robbie, if you realize you're out of awareness of breath and you bring your awareness back, it doesn't matter if you count to four or two or what have you. So yes, absolutely. But this fear, I think, is the most healthy fear I, I maintain. The fear of death winning. Yeah, yeah. And it, it really crystallizes everything. It, it makes you, or it makes me think at a, at a different level. And it is, you know, when all of your hormones too have kicked in at the right level. You know, uh, I remember the first time I, I, I put in a central line, my hands were shaking. Well, you know, that, that was, you know, fear of death winning, even though death had no chance of winning that one. And it, it was too much, but, but this, it's just like the right ejection. It's like the perfect hormonal milieu comes from it. And I feel like I'm performing as best I can. Do you naturally land in that spot or do you still use exercises to downregulate? No, I, I land in that spot pretty naturally, except in a couple of circumstances. One, what sends me out of that really good place is when there's intra-team conflict. And it's usually not my team. It's usually the ad hoc team. And that messes me up because then I'm like, I, I start thinking like, why are they doing this? We have a sick patient here. Let's just deal with this patient, not deal with the bullshit. Um, so that sends me out and then I have to bring myself back. And then, you know, there's there's always, if you keep it, trying to expand your career, things that are new. So, you know, for like eight years, I may not have really gotten outside my comfort zone too much because that's the beauty of doing a critical care fellowship at a really insane place like shock trauma is you don't see too much that sends you out of your comfort zone after that. But then I was I started training in ECMO and all of a sudden I'm right back there. Again, like to that first time I put in a central line, because the first time you have to stick in a, you know, a 28 French catheter into someone's vessel uh, without your mentors next to you, it's freaking scary again. And then you have to, again, regulate and bring yourself back. And that is it for today's episode. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other edition of Stimulus, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes or if it happens to be whatever, doesn't matter what it is, throw down a review and rating. As I read all those reviews, they come to me. And more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.